Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, the final of 2019, as some have fallen in love with over the last couple of weeks, the final one of the decade. Brought to you by Cooper Tires. Brought to you by the Justice Brothers. Brought to you by my British brother, Graham Goodwin. How are you this Sunday evening in the UK? Uh, cold is the honest answer. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Yes, it's a frosty uh, evening here in the UK. Uh, been been pretty cold over the last couple of days, but uh, pitch black. But we're now through. Uh, the shortest day and heading on towards spring and looking forward to all of that but uh, you know what yet again MP it's not been quiet on the news front even in Christmas week Uh, it's been a busy busy week and great to actually get the space to split this show in half and give our listeners the opportunity to clear up the remainder of the bumper bundle of festive questions that you and I uh, received from uh, from social media, from our friends on Twitter, on uh, Facebook, and of course uh, on the Reddit subgroups for uh, USCR and for WEC. Uh, nice to be able to tidy up uh, things around the edges. I'm so glad you said social media, not social diseases, because that's actually <laughs> exactly where my head went. Yes, yeah, speaking of news, we opened the sh- well, before we opened the show, before we hit record, we spent a good 15 or 20 minutes talking about all kinds of news that we can't talk about yet. So, uh, yes, I, I am ordering a fresh intercooler for the old keyboard here. It's going to be needed in January and February and whatnot, so... Well, for those who are listening for the first time, I am Marshall Pruitt. I have been involved in sports car racing since I was 18 years old. I cover the sport, primarily North American. It's been a few years since I've traveled abroad, but uh, primarily North American sports car racing, IMSA being the thing that I cover closest. That is Graham Goodwin, a man whose voice you've probably heard for many years if you are a fan of the FIA World Endurance Championship, European Le Mans Series, Asian Le Mans Series, reporter for DailySportsCar.com, editor of DailySportsCar.com. Each week, we gather your questions, chuck them into a few different categories for the series we just mentioned. Always have some that fall into a fun or general bucket. And we use the fine decision-making powers of Mr. Goodwin, our official selector, who really acts like the DJ of categories on the weekend sports cars. So, for the final time, this millennium, Graham Goodwin, where do we start the show? Which category do we start the show? Let's go with IMSA. And uh, since we did the first part of this show, MP, we've seen uh, since then the... Uh, the entry list for the Raw. In fact, the day after we're recording this show, we'll get the uh, the entry for the Raw, including drivers uh, across the remaining cars that we've not yet seen. There's a number of those that are still there with the dreaded TBA twins and triplets. Uh, but IMSA, we've still got a few questions to clear up from there, and I'm sure a little bit of banter about what we've seen on what is a 40-car entry for uh, the Raw before the Rolex 24 Hours, therefore a 40-car entry for the Rolex 24 Hours because it's a mandatory test. What say you, MP? To me, that's 
it's not a surprise, but it is a bit of a disappointment in terms of the overall numbers. 15% reduction in entry numbers from last year, or what is almost last year. We had 47 entries for the Rolex 24 slash Roar coming in with 40. It's a concern, mate. It's a concern. And if it weren't for vast cost-related changes made to the LMP2 class, which was on the brink of dying in 2019 with two full-time entries, if it weren't for significant changes to bring costs down, which led to a 300% increase in entries, we have six full-time cars planned for the year, six cars coming to the roar. If it weren't for the extra four showing up, we might be staring at 36 entries for this race. I haven't gone back and looked at, as I go through puberty once again, I haven't gone back and done the full historical review, but I did read a note from one sports car fan online that this is the smallest entry for the Rolex 24 in just about ever. And whether that is perfectly accurate or not, I can tell you that it sure feels like it is. And we don't want to open the show on too much of a depressing topic, but it is, frankly, really the the main thing we need to think about here. IMSA needs to think about not just what's going to take place in 2020, but really what they need to do to change, and there are changes needed to make this series more affordable, therefore more likely to have more entrants get involved. So we have GT Le Mans, which is down to six full-time cars, down from eight last year. We know that there'll be seven starting off the season here with Risi Competizioni turning up in their Ferrari, but there's six full-timers playing there. DPI is down, I believe, three entries or so. We have GT Daytona, which we're not exactly sure what the number is going to be, 10 to 12 full-time, something in that range, but not sure if it's going to be a huge number. GTD has been okay with adding some new entries there, so that's good, but it's coming with a bit of a vacuum in some areas of some that have either gone away or consolidated with other teams. This is something, Graham, where I think as we mentioned, I don't know if it was in the part one episode a few days ago or just in recent weeks, but we can't put a price on GTLM for the season because every manufacturer spends different amounts of money and that's not disclosed. But if you move up to DPI where there are customer entries alongside the factories, those teams regularly say that between five and six million dollars a year is what they need to contest all 10 rounds. That's ridiculous. That's just a ridiculous number for customer-based sports car racing. If we look at GTD, keep hearing that to field a highly competitive single entry there, staring at about $3 million. That is, <laughs> for a GT3-based car, that never leaves North America. There's no flights involved. There's no massive sending of pit equipment across the Atlantic, across the Pacific. This is just staying at home. The farthest we go is just a little bit north of the border, north of Niagara Falls, 
to go play at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, but for a domestic series, realize it's a fairly large plot of land we live on here, but $3 million for GT3-based customer racing. You go back and listen to not too many years ago with the relatively simple Daytona prototype era, tube frame prototypes. Again, nobody loved those cars. We're not claiming these are glamorous, but what was once the top class cost about $2 million a year to run. Now, the bottom class is actually a million dollars more per year to run. It's not hard, Graham, to grasp why we are heading into the Rolex 24 at Daytona. Many folks are ready to get on flights for the roar and are going to be, frankly, walking up to the shortest pit lane usage in just about forever. Instead of having cars just stretched from pit in to pit out, there's seven full pit boxes that are going to be unused. And at the current rate, if there are no changes for 2021, my friend, I would be confident in saying that if we were to wind the clock forward a year, we would be talking about 36, 35, 37. This problem is not going to get better unless significant changes are made to bring the numbers down to get more pro-am drivers into the field, able to run, able to afford it, able to play, instead of sending them off to SRO-based competition, here with the uh, the once-named World Challenge Series, or just out of professional racing altogether. So 15% reduction might not sound like a big number. It's a big number. This is a warning sign to the series that something or some things must change. I don't want to say it's on the brink, Graham, but this is one of those signals that things could go very bad with just a couple couple of teams, couple of funded drivers stepping away. All of a sudden, the situation gets critical. I hope, I believe, this issue is well known within IMSA. And there could be some plans coming. I genuinely don't know of any that are being crafted, but I would not be surprised to learn of some initiatives this year, this coming season, to look at ways to bring those numbers down, just all in the name of survival. It's a fair point. Um, To give you a bit of context, MP, my relatively recent history with the Rolex 24 hours of Daytona goes back to 2002, which is the first time I came across to watch the race. There were 74 cars on the entry that year, 74. And bear in mind, that was before uh, we got into the Daytona prototype era. uh, And those changes were made for several reasons, uh, some business-led reasons, but principally to actually prop up numbers. Um, And we had 74, I mean, almost double what we're going to see this year that, that you know moving on to say no doubt in my mind it's a very high quality entry but 
there is a level at which you can't disagree with the numbers. And at a point where the Le Mans 24 Hours is under increasing pressure, for instance, to further increase the numbers and has done in the last um, uh, last 12 months to 62, and it'll stay that way this year, I'm absolutely certain of that, um, it is a concern, it is a worry. And uh, I'm sure the powers that be at IMSA are... Uh, fully engaged with looking at what they can do for this season and beyond at a point where, as we discussed on the other half of this show, opportunities are there. Transition is right here, right now. Transition is biting hard uh, with IMSA at the moment, particularly with the DPI field, where choices were made between LMP2 and DPI. Uh, That appears to have fallen a little flat for a number of reasons over the last 12 months. Uh, But there are Choices and opportunities that could be grasped. I'm keen, I'm sure everybody listening to this is very keen indeed uh, to hear whether or not both the ACO and EMSA will grasp that nettle and move us forward. There we go. Who do we have for our first asker of la questions? Uh, let's go to EMSA uh, to start this one. Let's go for Jacob Bain. Um, and Jacob says he's heard that the Rolex 24 Hours is starting an hour earlier than usual. Broadcast schedule on the EMSA website seems to confirm that. Do we know what the reason behind that change is? Is it just TV deals, or is it something deeper than that? I've no clue. Only thing that I can think of, having done zero work to investigate and come up with a real answer, Jacob, is usually such things are, as you mentioned, the result of some sort of TV scheduling something or other. Knowing that we have, uh, knowing that we have American football here heading into its playoffs, uh, knowing that that's going to dominate everyone's life and everyone's world, I can't tell you whether there is something football related that might cause a shift to the start slash end uh, that weekend. I haven't looked that far ahead, but rarely is it something other than television asking for the time to be moved can't really think of any reason unless they have the most accurate future weather forecast ever (laughs) (laughs) and they know it's there's going to be a torrential downpour and they want to avoid it by one hour on sunday uh usually it's tv jacob if i find out different i'll different i'll try and mention that on a future episode Let's kick off further down here with a question from Stephen Gardner. We've seen uh, already some of the uh, DMZ teams announcing their full-season driver lineups, and one change came from BMW and GTLM with Bruno Spengler. Uh, stepping away from DTM and coming to IMSA for a full season uh, drive with Tom Blomquist stepping away from BMW to joining our motorsport for a GT3 program uh, with them. Stephen asks, how do you think Bruno Spengler will adjust to IMSA and racing in North America after so many successful years in the DTM? Well, I would say considering he is from practice France, uh, since he's a Canadian and someone who is granted realize that uh, Quebec is rather different province than, say, English-speaking or English-native-speaking Canada, I would say this is probably not going to be a massive adjustment for Bruno. Culturally, would say that, well, I'm sure he'll be heading to many tracks for the first time. There's a reason why the guy is what he is. 
so successful in the DTM, you know, champion driver uh, of that caliber, just period. So I'm really excited for Bruno to show up and see what he can do in the world's biggest race car. Uh, That should be a blast (laughs) to watch, not just because it's a fun team, fun car, different car, etc., but he is someone whose talents, like a Scotty McLaughlin, uh, now you know back-to-back Australian supercar champ, he's someone who I would love to see stateside, knowing how much they have achieved elsewhere in this realm of sports car racing. So I think he's going to be just fine. I think he's going to be a rocket. My guess is he also makes the team better. I know that this is a well, well drilled team, been around for a long time, continue to hire high caliber staff to support everything that's going on. I just believe that someone like Bruno, having been, you know, at the tip of BMW's DTM spear for so long, having achieved so much success, just being known as a, a real serious operator, just genuinely hardcore racer and having been in that space for quite a while, Graham, I am confident young Bruno, not as young as he once was, but I am confident Bruno is not just going to come turn the steering wheel and do good things there, but really make this program better just by bringing in a a different set of experience than most and also just a pretty direct way of getting the job done. So... I can't wait. Only question, as always, is how fast will the car be? What is BOP going to do? And will that neuter everything that I just mentioned? Uh, I'll add just this to this one. I've not had many dealings with Bruno Spengler. The last time I actually sat down with him was some years ago with a rather excellent uh, effort at the Spa 24 Hours where he joined Timo Glock and Alex Zanardi um, in a car there. But what I would say is the uh, the limited time I've spent with him, I think he's got the personality to really make uh, North America work for him. Um, and I, I don't say that lightly. Uh, I think he's got exactly the kind of personality that will be embraced by the very different feel of an IMSA paddock to many European paddocks. Um, and I wish him the best. Uh, I think he is one of motorsports good guys. Uh, we're lucky enough to have plenty of them. And it does seem as if the filter that applies to talent and character seems to have got another one in the net there and uh, thrown them your way, MP. So fingers crossed um, the uh, Canadian talents of Mr. Spengler might well be something that gets our Cardiac buddies uh, motivated uh, to turn out in even bigger numbers despite the potential for bear attacks and uh, and watch those BMWs. Absolutely. And plaid-themed motor racing Porsches, too. So there's all kinds of fun. A <laughs> um, couple of questions on a not dissimilar theme to, to finish off the uh, the IMSA questions we had remaining in our bumper bundle. Uh, Daniel Tripp and George Buda. Uh, Daniel asks, with McLaren and Porsche wanting a DPI, a hashtag car car convergence, any chance of a compromise with IMSA and ACO simply implementing both sort of separate but equal global classes. Hashtag me personally, this would seem an ideal solution for prospective teams and manufacturers by allowing more options. I know we discussed this at some length in the first part of the show, but it is this is the topic of conversation without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, this is something, Daniel, where I do wonder 
if the timing of introduction between the bespoke ACO FIWC hypercar class and the year and three months later IMSA DPI 2.0, I wonder if that is something that will be perceived or received as an insurmountable gap one that cannot be overcome, therefore will lead to the implementation of, as you mentioned both here, uh, Hypercar as its own thing, DPI 2.0 as its own thing, and having two separate but equal global classes. That's the, the main thing that I ponder. Will both sides in this these convergence talks, which are real, are both sides willing to find a way, willing to concede something, because both sides would have to concede something, to say, okay, converging appears to be the thing that everybody, almost everybody wants. Can we do this in a way where we don't get so far down our own paths with our separate but equal cars that we end up with the, this feared either dual expense or things that are just too dissimilar uh, so that it would make it too hard or impossible to converge two different formulas to compete together. That's my worry. So if I'm doing nothing more than looking at the time gap, September 5th, Silverstone 2020, debut of the hypercar formula, uh, January, whatever the first week, Friday is in January, the roar 2022 new DPIs come out. Is there a way, Daniel, where both sides can look at this scenario and say, do we really want to need two separate classes? I know that there's the one train of thought of, oh, well, if, as you mentioned, McLaren and Porsche, if, they could build a car, not sure what it would be, a DPI or a hypercar, and take that across to North America and back and do full WEC and do Le Mans. If they could just play globally with whichever type of car they chose to build, okay. Knowing that at least here in North America, for sure, we're going to have manufacturers that build things that in this convergence construct could then go play at Le Mans, could play at other WC rounds, we believe, but would be different. We're inevitably going to see differences, performance differences. I would just say that if there's going to be real convergence, we need to converge to one. There needs to be one formula that is agreed upon. And I believe... That is the thing most manufacturers, as my voice continues to go, I believe that's a thing where most manufacturers want to build one car and know that it can be used universally. I don't believe most manufacturers want to either contemplate the need to build one of each. I know that's not so much what's being discussed, Daniel, but I would say that's a bit of a reality. If we think about 
again, I know it's a little bit of a different vein, but if we think about NASCAR, it's absolutely normal for teams to build cars. It has been normal for teams to build cars that are specialized for the different types of circuits that they go to. Super tiny short track, you'll have a super tiny short track car that is optimized for constant turning. For super speedways, you'll have vehicles that are optimized for minimal turning but straight line perfection. Road courses, they'll have a road course car. It's coming up with something where they know across the span of a full championship, they have something that in every significantly different type of discipline where they go race, they're going to have a vehicle that is best best suited for that how many times have we seen a car built in europe honed and tested on european tracks come over to north america and struggle on some of our street courses our super bumpy less than smooth circuits see quite often the american cars that have been tested and developed on these rough and tumbled circuits tend to succeed this just has the potential for exploiting all of the differences that make trying to put two different formulas together on track at the same time and being able to tell the manufacturers or even the privateers running those cars oh yeah you're gonna have a chance you come over here we go with it whatever all gonna be good it's as if the car is going to be blind to where it's racing, that's how equal things are going to be. We also know, and we're not going to get into BOP, <laughs> as we normally do, Daniel, but we also know BOP and its routine failings that advantage one car over the other, disadvantages one or two over others. So if we're going to try and take two, dif- two different formulas, put them together, and balance them as well through BOP, Uh, this to me just sounds like a nightmare. Not a nightmare of of what it's going to take to do it, but a nightmare in terms of too many manufacturers saying, all right, this was a failure. (laughs) This is is a joke. Our car that's great here, when we go over there to do this, it's not great, or vice versa, whatever it is. Uh, So my, my goal, if I'm doing this, I am indeed talking with the ACO and FAWC and asking, so hypercars, how committed are you to this? How far down the road are your the handful of manufacturers in building their cars for that September 5, 2020 debut? And Graham, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on that part in just a moment. But how far down the road are you? How important is convergence? How important is convergence to these American sports car centric manufacturers. I realize they're not all from America, but those who choose to come and play in DPI, how many European sports car manufacturers would be open to just going forward with one formula that can truly traverse any and all coasts, any, all bodies of water and play do realize that there would likely be a BOP among those, but at least you'd be working from the same formula. That's what I, that's the thing where I mentioned at the outset, Daniel, in this 15 month gap between first official 
on track for, well, granted, there might be official preseason tests in the WAC, but long story short, something that debuts for all to see in September of 2020 versus January 2022. Is that time gap something that both sides here can agree? All right, we got to come up with something. Do we extend the current cars, this LMP1 hybrid loan entry from Toyota and the LMP1 privateers? All right, guys, I know this is yet another change, but keep going. All right, DPI 1.0, I guess keep doing like you're going to do. Don't make any changes. Is there a way to move this up at all? I doubt it. I mean, it'd be pretty hard for this to land in say 2021 from a financial standpoint it's pretty (laughs) it's pretty far down the road graham we're well past the significant budget allocation window for manufacturers to build new dpis under a new formula moved forward a year to have those cars designed constructed testing and on track 12 months from now is the timeline impossible to do that no is the getting two three five ten manufacturers uh, being able to go to their marketing team their r&d team their chief financial officers and say hey by the way uh eh, we need eight figures to make this happen now write the check that's the stopping point so This, to me, all comes back to a point of, Daniel, if there's going to be convergence, the only way it makes sense, even though we don't have a lot of significant answers that would need to be in place, is both sides agreeing on one formula and picking probably that January 2022 date as the official launch of that formula. Anything less than that, you do your hypercars, we'll do the dpi 2.0s and we'll run across and play with each other and so on and we'll try and figure out a way to balance that would just be a mess the other quick thing i'll throw in here too to close is on the engine side repeating what i've said a number of times in recent episodes here daniel but imsa so far has been very clear in saying dpi 2.0 will be a hybrid formula They've done a lot of work looking into spec hybrid systems. Whether they converge or not, that's going to have to change as well. There's no way any racing series coming up with a new formula, IndyCar, NASCAR, IMSA, WEC, you name it. There's no way any series is coming up with a new custom-built vehicle formula. Not production-based, but just truly bespoke formula where they mandate a single type of quote future current modern technology as the thing that must be used there's just no way the auto industry can accept that because the auto industry doesn't know what it's going to be two years from now three years five years seven years repeating this as well but this is if imsa or IndyCar, or NASCAR, were to say, we're going hybrid in 2022, 23, whatever, and it's going to be a four- or five-year formula. 
it's like telling folks that there's going to be a new mandatory mobile phone that everyone must use starting in 2022, and it's the iPhone 6. <laughs> and you have to use that for five years. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've had, you know, we have many people have iPhone 10s. Air 11s, and who knows what number they'll be by then. There's no one that would sign up for that because it makes no sense. Because technology will have moved in so far beyond the iPhone 6. That being, you may as well tell folks you're going to have to use rotary telephones. You're going to have to go to your grandparents' house and steal a rotary phone and carry that around for the next five years. Be that guy in 2027 with a rotary phone in hand. Or this ancient piece of technology, your iPhone 6, if they still make chargers, charging cables for it and software updates even apply to it by then. You know, this is saying, yep, Windows 95, that's the new future. There's no way you can do that legitimately while the auto industry is in the midst of its biggest single transformation in my lifetime. So there's just some realities here, Daniel, between convergence, acknowledging that you cannot paint a single technology. It's going to be a 50 horsepower battery based KERS hybrid system for all. It's got to be optional. You have to allow manufacturers to say, we want to try this. We want to put this in the engine bay. We want to mount this in the side pods. Can we? What do you think? How can we make it work? We don't know what we're going to be, but we know we need freedom. That's going to be the real, an, another real challenge for convergence here, Graham. Uh, I agree. I think um, it's a tricky moment, isn't it? And we, we have to presume that uh, the people in charge at IMSA and the people in charge at the ACO know rather more in terms of detail than we do about uh, programs that are already declared and programs that have not yet been declared or even in early discussions, they will make a decision uh, based, I think, on two or three things. Number one is what is going to sustain the overall numbers of potential, let's call them factory entries, uh, for the next three to five years. Number two what they think is going to sustain not only their biggest races, the Relics 24 Hours, Sebring 12 Hours, the Le Mans 24 Hours, etc., but what will give them a full grid of top-class cars for a full season, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship and the FI World Endurance Championship. That's been the critical issue, I think, here about convergence, is that you know when we had what seems like an awfully long time ago, uh, the war of words between hypercar and dpi in its current iteration um where effectively we were being asked to choose a side uh and there were an awful lot of people saying that dpi in its current configuration was the answer i never bought that i never bought that because i was not aware of a single manufacturer that wanted to go and do a full season of aco rules racing with a dpi and you know that's where we are right now um do i think we will have to get to the stage pretty rapidly where one or the other rule set is chosen. I think you're probably right, MP, but I think where we are right now 
And by the way, I think if that's going to be the case, it looks to me as if a heavily revised DPI 2.0, perhaps with a very different looking bodywork set, uh, and whatever they're going to do with the um, uh, the motive power in those cars and the options that are, exist there, hybrid, non-hybrid, you name it, um, that that might well be the sensible choice there. That's going to depend on two or three things. And principally, it's going to depend on what promises have been made to those manufacturers that have so far declared for hypercar. They are Toyota. Toyota have been very clear. And by the way, uh, massive plug here for some work that you'll be hearing on the Marshall Parade podcast. Uh, you'll be reading on Daily Sports Car, and I hope reading versions of this on Racer.com as well the next week or so. Stephen Kilby just back from um, a day at uh, Tota in Cologne, and they have some very interesting things to say about some of the minutiae to do with their programs, but also their approach to hypercar. Hypercar for them has always been a transition, transition from their mighty TSO 50 to what they believe comes next, which is zero emissions. They've always seen it as a transition. Um, so they're number one there. Aston Martin, honestly, who knows? It has gone very quiet, Aston Martin. Everything I've heard from Aston Martin says we should be uh, a little less worried than perhaps people are about that program, that nothing has changed. Uh, but there are clearly some questions there. And then Peugeot. But Peugeot is not before 2022. And we know they're in conversations with Orica. Orica are already a DPI chassis manufacturer. So there's all sorts of potential here to give, if you like, some wriggle room for those that have been early adopters for hypercar, if indeed the solution for convergence was less to do with convergence and more to do with perhaps a little tweaking of what will come with DPI 2.0. Uh, I, I think we're going to know about this pretty darn soon, and I think we have to because right now we're at the stage where to get those cars on track by 2022, decisions are having to be made just about now. Um, I'm hearing, I think, what you're hearing in the background, MP. We said it in the other half of this show. I'm being given lots of reasons to believe that there's a huge amount of positivity about the potential here on both sides of what has undoubtedly been a divide. Uh, and I think the potential win of getting this right is absolutely massive. I do believe we could be in an era where we've got two completely sustainable full season um, programs. I do believe we could be looking uh, in the very near future, to extraordinary numbers of high-quality factory entries at the biggest races of the year on both sides of the Atlantic. And I hope that we can find a common-sense way forward that gives us that for the next half-decade. I'm most encouraged on this topic, Graham, in the knowledge that the ACO and FIWC have been the ones coming to IMSA, going to IMSA, proposing this. You and I have that as pretty straightforward fact from a variety of sources. And I don't mention this from a power play standpoint. I mention this from a seriousness standpoint. Won't go back into all the stupidity from the past, but... We've had the ACO 
and FIWC make a lot of false promises, say, yeah, sure, let's do this, and then take it away and just wreak a lot of havoc with past plans. The fact that they are indeed the ones showing up trying to make this happen with IMSA makes me confident this could be a factual story about convergence that gets written taken out of years of hypothetical and changes and yes no and oh we're in oh but now we're not we're going to do our we're going to work together but by ourselves just it feels like we could have something real and the fact that it is the french coming over here trying to make this happen that is the big change we have not seen before one final question in the emsa section for this decade for this decade okay lest we forget comes from george bruder you know if if i held this and posted it on january 1st i think we'd lock ourselves into no show for 10 years right so i better yeah that just occurred to me i better get this up before then huh that better be done right he asks why did mustang sampling stop sponsoring a car from action express and move to jdc miller is the budget mustang sampling for the sponsorship the same as jdc miller other sponsors to fulfill the budget needed to enter a cadillac which action express does not uh, i know we've explained in part previously mp the, the question here is about whether mustang sampling's contribution has changed so the opening question why did they stop sponsoring a car from action express racing it's an easy, easy one, Georg. Can't sponsor a car that doesn't exist. Uh, that entry was shuttered at the end of the 2019 season. So hard to spend one's money on an entry that is no longer there to sponsor. What did happen is Joao Barbosa, one of the lead driver of that entry for many, many years, Christian Fittipaldi, his teammate who moved into kind of a consultant sporting director-ish type role after the Rolex 24 and Mustang sampling and former Action Express endurance driver Sebastian Bourdais all headed to and ended up at JDC Miller Motorsports. Believe the original plan until Sebastian's IndyCar seat was taken away by his team owner despite having a contract for the 2020 season was to be there on a part-time basis to be the endurance driver there with Joao, and I don't know who would have been his, I think, rumor is it would have been Joao and Tristan Vautier full-time. And with Sebastian then having far more time on his hands than he had hoped for, uh, that then transitioned into a full-time deal. Loic Duvall brought in to be the endurance driver. The Mustang Sampling Park Georg, which... I think I've mentioned on past episodes, Graham, but I'll do it quickly again. Under the financial structure at Action Express Racing, which is founded, founded-ish, owned, co-owned, I don't know the exact way of putting it, by IMSA founder, and I'm not talking 2014 IMSA, I'm talking the original 1969 IMSA founder, son of NASCAR founder, this being Jim France. So knowing that Jim is indeed uh, one of the primary financial engines behind the Action Express program for a decade or so, uh, the changes at NASCAR, something which he's been the president of now for, what, I think about a year or so, uh, he has been the president there. 
there have been some pretty significant changes going on at NASCAR. The International Speedway Corporation, which owns many of the tracks that the NASCAR championship competes on, that went public however many years ago. There was a decision made by the France family and I think their board members to reacquire ISC, take it private, back what it was. And to do that, a lot of money had to be spent. I believe there might have also been some debt taken on from that as well. So with all that put together, Georg, we have a situation where person who founded the very series where his cars race, he also founded Grand Am, is now in a position where on a family level, there was a decision to do something big business-wise and taking on massive amount of debt to do this with ISC meant that Jim's ability to freely spend millions on his passion, sports car racing, was no longer an option. That is the reason why the number five Action Express Racing Cadillac DPIVR no longer in existence. And so with all that said, the Mustang sampling angle is a pretty interesting one. Really good people, folks who just are beloved by all those who work with them. They had the very unique opportunity to have their name writ large on that car you would get the impression that Mustang Sampling was the primary sponsor based on the size of the graphics placed on the vehicle. In reality, no disrespect to them, they were able to give the impression of being a high-dollar sponsor while indeed not having to contribute a massive amount. The rumor, and it's just that, it's a rumor, But the rumor that I've heard for a little while was they were spending roughly a million dollars a year. If we go back to the start of the show and DPI costing five to six million per year per entry, could understand why that amount is a pretty sweet deal if we look at the size of the branding on the car. So with their vast interest in remaining in sports cars, it's great to hear that they wanted to move along with Joao and Christian and re-engage with Sebastian at JDC, I cannot say, because I don't know, Georg, if they have spent more, if they have stepped up, knowing that JDC does not have a Jim France-like character footing the vast majority of the bill. They do have some you know, a great ownership base, though, and some supporters there who do, I don't know what the number is, but they do help facilitate things considerably, but... I can't tell you whether Mustang Sampling is spending more than they did at Action Express Racing, but this was never a big expenditure to begin with. So if they're able to continue with a very similar version of the program they've been plugged into just at a different team, I'd say good on them and good for JDC to take on a partner that has been beloved where they were for the past, whatever it was, five years or so, six years. I don't remember exactly how long, but Mustang Sampling folks, pretty darn cool that they just remain committed to IMSA. Time to move on to our beloved friends at the WEC Aslam's Echo Elms. Well, well, yeah, friends, Um, at uh, the ACO Rules Racing. Um, now, skipping over the first one there, MP, which rather 
um, continues the debate we started the show and continues the show with to a convergence. Um, I think our first one's from young Daniel Summerskill, isn't it? It does. And this means that I get to lob. I get to throw, hopefully, touchdown passes to you with the questions here. Finally, we go to young Mr. Summersgill. Says, with Valentino Rossi performing very well in, quote, last weekend's golf 12 hours in impending retirement from MotoGP, likely at the end of 2020, could we see the doctor at Le Mans in a GTEM Ferrari? Uh, well, he did indeed give uh, some media interviews at the Golf 12 Hours at Yas Marina. Um, and has made it very clear that that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to come and race at Le Mans and elsewhere in endurance racing. So I think it may be we see him in more than just the Le Mans 24 Hours. Whether or not that will be in a GTE Am Ferrari remains to be seen. Uh, but he would be a glorious addition to the paddock. Uh, I don't think he's going to be the only big name we see in endurance racing in the next 12 to 24 months. I'm aware of at least one other a uh, pretty special name that we're going to see uh, added to an entry list in 2020. Watch this Christophe No, I think he comes up later. Um, and in, inevitably so. But um, he'll like be very acid welcome. reflux. He'll be coming <laughs> up later. But uh, from uh, from all the guys I know that have had dealings with uh, Valentino in MotoGP, and for that matter, in the various guest appearances he's made in other uh, major motorsport events, I think he'll be a spectacularly good fit. And pretty uniquely, will most certainly add um, bums on seats, people coming through the turnstiles. And that, for me, my friend, is a very good thing indeed. Uh, I hope it happens. hope it happens soon. And I hope he's got a big smile on his face when he starts, a big smile on his face whilst he's doing it, and a big smile on his face when he finally steps down from that one too. I believe I might have seen a tweet or retweet with a comment by adopted Californian Jensen Button regarding convergence and a desire for that to happen. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. Seems like a lot of folks love the idea of coming. Oh, and he doing wants back. About, well, wait, the other thing, to, the other thing to say here is Jensen has made it clear he would like to come back in a hypercar. You know, uh, but obviously convergence has come along since that opportunity has come in. Also, saying to us that he would be back in a hypercar, Fernando Alonso uh, has said that he expects to be back and racing at Le Mans. So it's an interesting moment here. The choices that are going to be made, I think, in the coming weeks rather than months are going to have very far reaching effects in terms of not just what we see on track in these big races, but who we see on track in the big races. To get it right, I think there's a massively rich theme to be mined here. Uh, I cannot wait for the correct decisions. Please, please, the correct decisions to be made. There we go. Speaking of where we go, right turn lover, he says, would Rebellion Peugeot be allowed to start the season using a grandfathered LMP1 and then switch to car car in season. Talking about their hypercar announcement. Right. So remember, uh, the Rebellion Peugeot effort has been announced for 2022. 
have not said when in 2022, but 2022. I think you can be assured that they would be looking to try to get that car in a year early in 2022 for Le Mans, uh, rather than putting all their eggs in the centenary race basket the, the previous year. But that does leave, of course, a big gap for the uh, whole of next season, 2020, 2021, and the remainder of the 21-22 season. Uh, absolutely non-committal in the interview that's featured uh, on the Marshall Perrett podcast and indeed uh, with uh, the interview we did with Hugh de Schonach in uh, on Daily Sports Car from Bahrain as to what the plans are. Those plans, he tells me, will be determined in the coming weeks uh, for next season for Rebellion Racing. Very much Orica partners in that. And Orica, of course, also in discussion with Peugeot about their programme. So in answer to the question... Uh, my good mate, right turn lover, would they be allowed to start the season using grandfathered LMP1? I think they'd be allowed to do what the hell they want uh, to keep cars in the top class uh, because, you know, we're not sure yet what numbers we're going to have for next season or indeed the season beyond. So would they be allowed to do it? I'm sure they would. Would they want to do it? That remains to be seen. Let's go to Robin Crickman. It says, during the race in Bahrain, that being the recent WEC round, I believe, compared Direct to Mondo. dog racing there, possibly. I saw on two occasions, Marshall's dash onto what I think was an active track to retrieve debris. This seems very dangerous. Isn't there some better way to do this? A robot or Waldo. I don't know what that is. Or at least a long pole with a grabbing claw on the end. (laughs) Uh, Right, Robin, uh, it's a fair question, and I have to say the same uh, thought occurred to me, uh, with one exception, which is I have absolute undying respect for the values, the approach, and the execution of these matters by our race director in the WEC, Juan Eduardo Freitas. There is, and I think the other thing is, when you see what we see on TV, um, it's very easy to see that in absolute isolation. I think at least one of the two uh, instances was under a full course yellow. I think the other one was on a double wave yellow. Now, they will be getting direct radio uh, feedback from uh, race control, and it may well be giving them, you have a six or seven second window to execute that. Um, the marshals at Bahrain International Circuit are amongst the best, uh, well-trained by some of the UK marshals uh, when the circuit was established, and a prouder group of men and women you would have to go a long way in the world of motorsport to find. They know exactly what they're doing. They've been, of course, running with uh, Formula One Grand Prix uh, since the start of that circuit, uh, what, a decade and a half ago. And I agree with you visually. It perhaps looked risky. I can guarantee you, even without having asked the question, that it was not remotely as risky as it looked. Because if they were taking risk, I can guarantee you they would not have been on the park for very much longer. They would have been withdrawn for the post by the race director. They would have been operating under explicit instruction from race control. uh, And race control is exactly what it says on the tin, controlling that situation. I'm going to propose a global solution here, Graham. Yeah. If you could pass this on to Mr. Freitas, I think I think he's going to like this one. So, Robin, we do have this scenario where 
it does feel like one of those really bad internet videos where you see the animal getting ready to walk across the six lane highway and you're just like, oh my God, please do not get hit. We think about tennis. They obviously have the the young boys, young girls who are just in a crouch stance ready to go and run across and retrieve a ball uh, that's died at the net and move out of the way swiftly to allow the match to continue. I'm thinking, you know, there sure are a lot of Porsche Junior drivers out there. And if we think of Lamborghini, we think of so many other manufacturers, Ferrari, that have junior drivers, young driver program, BMW and such. Surely, those young drivers who aren't competing in WEC rounds, there could be a, a bit of a pool of young driver talent that gets stationed at uh, at all major corners. And they indeed are like the young men and women retrieving those uh, dead tennis balls. Hey, got debris? All right, let's see how uh, good old young Porsche junior driver from Austria or wherever else, let's see how fast that little sucker can go. Oh, guess what? <laughs> We're not going virtual safety car. We're not going yellow. No, we're staying live. Look, you spent all day training. These marshals over here, you know, they're going back to working in a shop or who knows what else they're doing for a living. You, you spend every day in the gym, according to your Instagram account. Go, sucker, get it. You find out who really, really wants to be an ongoing member of the uh, junior driver ranks. You know what? There's something there, isn't there? There's a condition of that uh, that pro ranking, if you like, that that they've got to at least go through that training and perhaps serve on a on a. I think that's a great idea. I genuinely do think that's a good idea. Uh, you know, you've got to go through all sorts of, I jump through all sorts of hoops to get to the various licenses that uh, the guys and the girls do at a pro am and a pro level. Um, I think there's every reason why they should see it from that side of the fence. I do know some that have, and universally those that have seen it from a marshal's perspective, and for that matter from a race control, a race director's perspective for the first time, have come out of that experience with their eyes much wider open. I've spoken to a couple of pros who were given the opportunity to sit in race control and watch what goes uh, goes on there. Uh, having a much different view of the decision-making process and the accuracy of that process than perhaps they did from being irritated they had to go down pit lane at 50 kilometers an hour. We often accuse the uh, young drivers of of driving like wild animals. Let's see how they fare with the look of of an opossum trying to sprint across the track and grab debris and get across without getting hit. Driving the car is easy. Dodging the cars. Not so much. Plus, this would just give the uh, decrepit media core yet another thing to wager on at each round, uh, sitting in the air-conditioned media center, <laughs> laying down cash. Uh, do you think he's going to make it? Uh, uh, he looked like he put on a few pounds. He might get clipped. So there we go. Imagine the day when media members were forced to be the ones posted at each corner. Oh, no, down no, debris. no, 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 no. Yeah, that would be the... Uh, the splat 1000 because trust me there wouldn't there wouldn't be many of us if any of us left uh half of the media wolf down packs of cigarettes the others might be slightly rotund something i know nothing about uh yeah very few have seen the inside of a gym so 
Just an idea. Mate, mate the, the, the only time that kind of level of speed has ever been seen, ever, 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 is when they open the buffet at Daytona International Speedways. <laughs> it's the only media buffet where they actually have ambulances outside just idling because they know there's going to be grave injuries from folks. You know, it looks like a hockey match with the amount of missing teeth and elbows being thrown to get to whatever processed meat under a heat lamp. So good call there. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the really extraordinary thing there, MP, is inevitably, I'm never there when that damn thing opens, but inevitably, too, the first five or six people in that row are people I've never seen before and will never see again. I'm just always reminded of the movie Caddyshack. And Rodney Dangerfield's character, Al Zervik, referring to the uh, food coming out of the country club as dog food and the chef getting word of a dog food and holding up the big uh, the big butcher's uh, carving knife to chase after him. So, yeah, uh, I mean, look, I can't tell you what animals uh, go into what's prepared and and fed there, but I can tell you uh, I think some of them might indeed be things that get hit and picked up off the side of the highway because, yeah. There's a reason why you see me bringing in my own food every day at Daytona. Thanks, good. Thanks everybody at Daytona. Good night. Let's go to a Ryan Terpstra who says, all I want for Christmas is an alternative broadcast option to Eurosport for the 24 hours of Le Mans 2020 here in the U.S. I'm going to let you comment on that one, mate. I mean, can I, do I just go back and find my rant uh, for the show we did after Le Mans? I mean, I think Neil Cole's the only one that I'd said, look, brother, I appreciate the work you did in trying to create something positive with uh, Mr. Christensen there. But the rest, I am just convinced that they possibly tapped into the audio from a cricket match. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I can tell you that whatever they were talking about, had nothing to do with what was on the screen and the amount of knowledge being displayed as to what took place at Le Mans during the broadcast was about as relevant or accurate as the wrong audio feed from a completely different sport altogether. So like you, Ryan, I have no idea. Uh, My last Le Mans in person was 2016. I did the the Fox broadcast here in 2017, so haven't been there in a couple years. Unless there are significant changes we hear about, Graham, I might just simply need to go to Le Mans as a fan this year just so I can enjoy better live (laughs) coverage uh, and also brush up on my French, possibly. Um, I realize I believe there's an app where I might be able to hear voices that sound like yours as well. But, uh, yeah, something needs to improve for the readily available non-cost version for Americans. I can can tell you, I mean, having done full race uh, this year with the TV team from WEC for the first time, um, I would heartily recommend it. Uh, I thought the guys that we had along there, we had um, Jim Roller, Martin Haven, uh, the uh, all-Scottish lineup of uh, driver assistants from uh, Alan, 50 years old today, by the way. Happy birthday, Alan. Um, I texted that little bastard. He hasn't replied, so (laughs) I no longer like him. Okay, Alan Mendish, Peter Dunbreck, and Jamie Campbell-Walter. It's... knitted together very nicely so if you do have access to the app i know it's a it's a paid service 
but there's an awful lot of uh, goodies on it. Go for that if you've got it. If it's not geo-blocked, I would heartily recommend it. And that's not just because I'm doing it. It's because I sit in awe of the people I work alongside, and I think they do a fabulous, fabulous job. There's an awful lot of good stuff there, including all sorts of camera angles you won't normally get on uh, a video feed. And I know there's a particularly special camera angle coming for the coming season. Crotch cam. (laughs) No. Okay. Uh, Let's see. We're going to go to uh, our man, Jacob Bame again. It says Coda is back on the wet calendar, this time officially with the Lone Star Le Mans name. Do you think the wet could benefit in the marketing department from some more custom race names? Renaming, for example, Silverstone to its trophy name, the International REC Tourist Trophy TT, could make it pop out in the calendar. Granted, I think it would, but for folks 70 and older, uh, and help build its own identity as a standalone event. Names could also have geographical or cultural influences. Six Hours of Fuji becoming, for example, Race for the Rising Sun, Japan being Land of the Rising Sun. Spa could become the Ardenian Passage because the track lies the very border of the Ardennes. Bonus points for names and native tongue. Maybe you have your own ideas. This is all you. Um, I think the answer is no. I don't think the race name's got anything to do with that. I think what would make a difference is the manufacturers getting off their asses and actually backing these races and putting some more activation into them. Some do, but not to the extent that perhaps they have done in in the past. I think that's where the... uh, the divide could be crossed, if you like, by just making this something that the manufacturers globally or the importers nationally get behind and support. We've seen it happen in the past, uh, back in the day with uh, both Audi and Peugeot, bringing thousands of fans there through dealer offers, etc. I'd like to see a lot more of that back. We need bums on seats. We need people coming to those races. And we need people coming to those races that have not been introduced to it before. And then we need to put some more efforts into informing people and educating people about what makes this form of racing special. We do see it in some forms of endurance racing. It's something that uh, some of the major events that have formed up the uh, Intercontinental GT Challenge, for instance, have been pretty good at. Bathurst 12-hour, an absolutely brilliant event in terms of uh, the way that that's done. Great broadcast package, excellent opportunities to follow the racing uh, on site. A team under Richard Crail that puts a huge amount of effort into pre-publicity and uh, uh, publicity during the event. A great fan area, etc., etc. It is something the WEC has put some efforts into in the past, particularly in putting together a grid show, um, which I think has, has had some positive effects on it. But no, I don't think the name of the event is the thing. I think what it is is the quality of the event because you're dealing with an endurance race and therefore you are looking to keep an individual, uh, a couple, a family, a group of friends entertained for a lengthy period of time, you need to give people options other than just sitting in a grandstand seat or on a spectator bank for 6, 8, 12, 24 hours. You've got to put this thing together as an absolute event. That takes time. It takes creative energy. And you know what? It takes money as well. And that's where the manufacturers can and should be making a difference. And all too often, I'm afraid, they simply have not done that. And 
that's uh, a real shame. There are events on the WEC calendar that could break through to be greater than the sum of their parts, and certainly the Fuji race is one of them. Exemplary uh, spectator area and activities there behind the main grandstand. Oddly enough, if there's one that actually comes closest to that level of show, um, it's Bahrain. Uh, the problem is that all too often people simply don't turn out to the races in Bahrain. This year, a little bit different, much bigger crowd. It was the National Day weekend, so a great uh, time to actually have that race. Maybe they'll have taken that on board uh, for a race at the end of the calendar year, because that, that certainly worked. Um, I think this comes down to being a, maybe a little bit more prescriptive about exactly what it is that uh, people want to see uh, at a race weekend. I I mourn the passing for this reason and only this reason uh, for the purpose of this conversation of the Nissan LMP1 effort. Why? Because if that had stayed on until 2016, you likely would have seen something very special in terms of the way in which the engagement with the fans was likely to come together. Um, I'm hoping that can be resurrected. And you know some, something, MP? I'm hoping that our little effort can be part of that. Amen to that. Speaking of, you've seen it, I've seen it, hopefully folks will see it very soon, our new, for 2020, the Weekend Sports Car logo. Uh, we Ooh. change the vehicle every year, and there might be a few different vehicles that we have to show as our show logo. So, yeah, that'll be out here shortly. We have about an hour and a half total, roughly, for this episode. We have far more questions that we can get through, knowing that this is the final episode of the centenary uh just want to say thank you to some of those who sent things in won't be able to get to right now luke philippone for example neil hardy thank you porsche guy seven thank you as well jump in here quickly one for you graham from james counter agidio perfetti is the wc gentleman driver of the year hashtag me personally i couldn't pick a better winner graham who else should have been considered uh, well, bearing in mind the uh, Gentleman of the Year was for last season, I think Egidio absolutely um, blasted out as being the guy there that's, uh, that absolutely should have been top of the shop. Uh, for me, for the WEC in particular, Fritz van Erd, I think, was uh, excellent, although he struggled all season with the, the Delara last year. Francois Perodo struggled through a year where he wasn't very happy with his LMP2 car and sometimes lost his smile. Um, I think if we're looking forward to what's going on this coming year, Egidio again is impressing, but there's another man uh, in the same team that I think will have a half, well, he'll have at least one hand on that trophy, and that is Ben Keating. Ben, what a gent, what a racer, uh, exceptionally talented gentleman racer there, and I would not be at all surprised if we were talking about this in a year's time, that Ben Keating, amongst the trials and tribulations that he's suffered uh, over the last, last uh, 12 months and a little bit more, um, got the pleasant surprise of being... Uh, the one that got the nod for Gentleman Driver of this current season. But Egidio Perfetti um, first met his brother, actually, Daniele Perfetti, when he won the British GT Championship some years ago and met Egidio for the first time uh, as a surprise entry in the Michelin Le Mans Cup with a literally virgin white, brand new um, Porsche 911 GT3R. I had no real idea what was the, the plan at that stage. 
he was very welcoming to us in the awning since then has always had a smile uh, and always had uh, by the way a bucket of chubba chops uh, lollipops uh, in the back of the garage for anybody that wants it it's his family's company that owns that operation and mentos mints etc etc chumba wumba uh, lollipops is that what you said chubba chubba chops oh, okay yep you don't get knocked uh, down again with those okay got it good. It's the world's only Italian Norwegian confectioner, uh, but the he's <laughs> <laughs> uh, an excellent choice, and he's an excellent choice for two reasons: one, his talent, and two, his outlook. Uh, everyone loves a smiley race driver, but he particularly loves a smiley race driver when he's paying the bills. And uh, in, in this instance, Egidio, uh, I doff my cap to you, sir. Um, the talent is undoubted. It's come uh, very rapidly, and it's been sustained through this season as well. Aww. Let's see, let's say thank you to at Safe Phil for your question. Also, Let's go to Josh Ridgen, who asks a question that a few have sent in regarding eagle-eyed person that spotted wankles are legal in the hypercar formula. So there's been some recent articles regarding new legalization of rotaries at Le Mans with car car. Is there any truth to this? And if so, has it been written to cater for any specific manufacturer involvement? For example, could Mazda join car car, which is our home, um, home name here for hypercar? Well, let's put it this way. I think convergence could have all sorts of effects in all sorts of ways. I think what they're trying to do is to leave the door as wide open as possible for anybody that wants to come. Uh, so are, are they doing it on the basis that is something there waiting in the wings to arrive? Not that I'm aware of, but then again, they know more than I do. Uh, but I think what they're looking at here is come one, come all. It, oddly enough, through a completely different set of circumstances mp do you recall the conversations that you and i've had over the last 12 months about if you're going to bop bring it all uh, and i think there's an element here of that where they do have now an absolute appreciation of how difficult it is to draw together these factory programs and i think they are keen to express now that very open uh, sentiment that you want to come and you want to fit the rules, we'll do our level best to make that happen. Uh, the Again, the um, Inside the Sports Car Paddock chat we had, uh, notably clear stuff, by the way, from Vincent Beaumanil, so notably clear, by the way, that just about every single other sports car racing um, uh, outlet, uh, news outlet, followed within a week. I'm sure got on the phone to Vincent and said, can you say that in uh, slightly different words for me, please? Um, so I do um, uh, endorse that that's an interview with with Vincent and inside the sports car paddock just a few weeks ago because he made things very clear and the outlook is very much it's a bit Kravontic in a way which is Kravontic's uh, philosophy for the 24-8 series has always been you tell us what car you've got we'll find a class for it and I think what uh, Vincent and the uh, technical team and the sporting team at the ACO are basically saying here is, you tell us what you want to bring and we'll find a way to, to, for this rule set to make it make it fit. And does that include uh, rotary engines? It could. Do I expect there to be rotary engines? I don't, but I'd be delighted if I'm wrong. Yeah, and to come back to the closing question here from Josh, could Moz join Car Car? Of course. There's no, yeah, of course. nothing stopping them before or after. 
nothing tied to a rotary or non I mean, uh, there's nothing that has ever stopped Mazda from joining in. And whether rotaries are or aren't allowed, frankly, there's no bearing on that decision at all. So they absolutely last could. Time, last time I think Mazda raced a rotary was the RX-8 in Grand Arms of 2013, correct? correct? Or was it earlier than that? Now, 20, yeah, 2013 would have been it, I believe. So, yeah, it's or been a little that, while. Was that, was that just GX that year with the Mazda 6s? Uh, Maybe it's 2012. You're right, 2012. 2012. Yeah, 2013 was the one-off weird turbo diesel four-cylinder GX cars that were one and done. And then, yeah, yep. then those became turbo diesel LMP2s in 2014. Correct. So look at that. We're figuring okay. out years and numbers and whatnot <laughs> live on the show. All right, Jacob Bame, he is uh, dominating this episode with questions aplenty. Uh, we'll go with of the couple here. What are the chances of the ACO finally persuading Corvette to enter the WC with a C8R from season nine onwards? Are there any developments on that front? Well, the one development we have seen, of course, is that uh, Corvette will be entering a C8R, single C8R for uh, the WC race at Cota. That's is something we've seen before from Corvette. They have entered one-off races uh, with WEC with a single uh, C7R before now. But that is going to assist them, and for that matter, the ACO, in getting a handle on the balance of performance that's going to be required uh, for the C8R at the Le Mans 24 hours. So uh, was a surprise. It was a very pleasant surprise to see that coming forward. Is that a precursor to a full-season effort in the WEC? I'm sure the ACO would love to see that, but I'm not seeing any real signs. I don't know if you're going to tell me different, MP, any real signs of that changing anytime soon. I don't know of any changes, but one of the things I've enjoyed about the Corvette side is they do like doing interesting and unique things. It's a bit of a non-answer answer, but I mean, there are some brands who are just as predictable as can be. Whatever they say they're going to do for the year, they do that. They do nothing else. Corvette folks tend to try and leak out a little bit, do some different things. So as uh, Jacob mentions, it would clearly require some mutual handshakery with our friends in France for something to happen. Uh, if we were to do more season long type stuff, but who knows? I mean, truly, uh, I don't know what the plans are for the C eight in terms of European introduction. What kind of sales are they planning? When are they planned for? If they are indeed trying to push this uh, hard, at least at the outset of the car's introduction, then, boy, commissioning and spending the money for a European campaign would make a heck of a lot of sense. Biggest item here, Graham, and it's still just <laughs> it's mind-boggling. This Halo Corvette, this brand-new mid-engined, First of its kind road car uh, Corvette, sixty thousand dollars base price. Now you can dial that number up with lighter this and faster that and custom this and custom that. But this is a vehicle that performs at or near or better than its rivals in this category with Ferraris and Acuras and so on and so forth. You know, these, I'm not talking at the, the crazy 
Koenigsegg type level where, you know, a trillion dollars for something that's just, you know, there's three of them made on the planet and they cost zillions a piece, but actual call it supercars that humans can afford. Uh, that thing that might be a Porsche 911 turbo, it might be a, but just something where normally you're going to go get your Ferrari 488. You're going to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars. You're going to go get your Acura NSX. That's, I forget what, but it's, you know, spendy as well. They have come up with this C8R road car that does phenomenal things for $60,000 at the base price. I mean, the five-seater, five-seater, or does it seat seven? I forget. The SUV uh, that my wife and I bought when our last one was hit and totaled in a crash, the Mazda CX-9. I mean, out the door, knowing this would be her daily driver and I wanted her to have something nice and safe and all that kind of stuff, out the door was, I don't know, man, I think like $44,000. That's for a stupid SUV, man. <laughs> the fact that for an extra sixteen grand could have a new C8R, thoroughly ridiculous. So I think, this does come back to a point, Jacob, I think knowing that well, this is a very American solution in the supercar marketplace. It is so much cheaper than anything else you're going to buy from any manufacturer and can perform, like I said, close to equal, maybe better than some, where you'd have to spend double, triple, triple, quadruple. I think that might be a pretty interesting thing to offer the European market, Asian market, all over market. And using a FIWC campaign to market that throughout the world and sell a lot of the world's most affordable supercar. Uh, if the desire and money is there within GM to do it, man, that sure sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Let's go to WBD Shumi. I have a question regarding Job van Oetert's. I always get his, I don't even try well to pronounce it correctly. I don't know if I just did. His Instagram post, he states that he can't drive for G-Drive next year because of his upgrade to gold driver rating. What are the rules for driver ratings? If they did single races in 2019, part of that season, will he still be able to drive in the WEC as a silver in 2020? Thanks to his drive for RTN and G-Drive this year, so on and so forth. Curious on our man. Uh, right, so um, uh, one quick story quickly about Job Vanuted. I've told Job that uh, because there, is, there are so many hilarious translations or uh, pronunciations of his name that uh, a good, fun thing to do would be every single time a journalist or broadcaster asks them the name to pronounce it in a slightly different way. Um, so <laughs> you could actually... <laughs> he found that quite funny. Whether or not he's doing it, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, so Joe the answer ben is Halen. this. Yes, Joe Halen. That's a, I know um, the letters don't match, but that's how my last name's pronounced. I'll answer this really quickly in three different parts. He is absolutely talking about G Drive in LMS next year, and absolutely for the LMS, it would it would reflect his current assessed. 2020 driver grading which is gold which does count him out of the drive he's got this year that's number one number two is that in the asia le mans series and in the wec as a full season driver you do indeed retain your driver ranking at the start of the season to the end of that season in that championship only Okay, so in other words, if you entered 
as a silver in the WEC uh, at Silverstone in September. You retain as a silver whether or not you're actually elevated to gold until and including the Le Mans 24 hours in June of next year. Um, the final part of it is how does that impact those that are, are racing on a race-by-race -race basis? This one's a, this is a good question. I've heard, I have to tell you, differing responses to to that. There are those that have told me that uh, you do retain it, and there are those that have told me you fundamentally don't. My understanding is that you have to have been a full season entrant for that to be the case. And, you know, yes, force majeure, or uh, if you miss the odd race, that doesn't impact that. But I don't believe that Jan van Utrecht uh, would retain his silver um, for G-Drive if, for instance, he wanted to race at the Le Mans 24 hours for them next season. I think he would be fundamentally a gold driver. That's my understanding of the rule set. Going to say a few more thank yous to questions that we're not going to be able to get to right now. Uh, Rob Chalmers, as always, thank you, brother, for sending in stuff every week. I want to say thanks to SRA Smoking Puppy 841, who, separate from the questions posed here, gave us a nice, long, multi-tweet explanation about the origin of that screen name we were asking about. So thank I'm you. I'm, I'm not buying it. Well, neither am I. Now we're waiting no. for Graham Goodwin to give us a multi-tweet explanation <laughs> for his screen name, Graham Goodwin. Uh, another fake one. I'm uh, going to say thanks to NCWG4. Going to go to one of the last one or two, maybe the last one in... Uh, Weck, Elms, Azum, Echo, whatever we call it this week. Big Racer, boy! Possibly my favorite screen name of all on the weekend sports cars. It says, with Goodyear being the tire for LMP2 for the foreseeable future, and there being actual GT tires, a la the Brabham, is, are there any GTE or GT3 teams that are looking at using Goodyears or at least considering them? Right. Well, let's. Uh, there's a couple of bits and pieces. There's WC and there's ELMS. ELMS, uh, the Dunlop tyre last year, the Goodyear tyre this coming year, is the designated tyre for GT. And uh, keep an eye out on uh, DSC in the next week or two, maybe, depending on how long it takes me to get this down, uh, for my prediction as to just how many GT cars you're going to see in the ELMS next season. I think there be some people would be rather surprised. Um as for what the ACO intend to do about GTE Pro, that's a really good question. Uh, I think the answer is nobody really knows quite yet. Uh, there was an awful lot of, how can we put this, moaning and groaning uh, going on around the uh, the way in which first hypercar and then LMP2's designated tire supplier came forward. Like sexy of, moaning and groaning? Well, not really quite the opposite, in fact. Um, you know, the kind of who bid most for hypercar? Was it the ones who were ultimately successful? Was there, is there a particular reason why there was no um, tender for the LMP2 thing? Well, blindly, obviously, there was because the ACO clearly wanted uh, Goodyear as a partner. Um, that, that brings with it some real commercial advantages. Not really at home to Mitchell moaning about that at all. Um, is the, you know they they have got the premier class there. The open question though, the remaining open question is: Do you have a single dedicated tar supplier for GTE Pro, or do you leave that open in exactly the same way that IMSA has? 
And my belief at the moment is they're edging towards leaving that open. I am absolutely aware that uh, Goodyear have been looking for a potential taker for their tyres. Remember the last time we had a non-Michelin tyre supplier in GT Pro, it was Dunlop, it was Aston Martin Racing, and they won the championship. So the reality there is there is is real uh, potential... There was real potential. Where'd where'd you go? Is the potential gone? It's gone. Oh, do you hear the little the little beepity beep? We're trying to reconnect. He was going to say they are going to use in the future Goodlops. That's uh, a new hybrid tire, actually from Goodyear and Dunlop. Uh, the Dun years not quite as good. So definitely Goodlops will be used going forward. Do we have you back, Graham Goodwin? We don't have you back. See, listeners, I should edit this out. I'm not going to. It's no fun. This is the real stuff that happens. It's the usual silliness. Hey, we're calling them back. Let's see if we can get them. Hi, mate. I've got this on phone only. My line's dropped out. Wow. Well, don't worry about um, it. I'm sorry, gonna, I'll leave this part in, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? So, um... Uh, it's trying to reconnect. Well, let's just keep going. So I was just mentioning that uh, the new plans include uh, Goodlops. That's the new hybrid tire. They tried the Dunn years, but those were not nearly as good, so they binned that program. So Dunstones or the Bridgelops. Yep, so Goodlops, definitely going to be the way forward. Well, why don't we, uh, let's see, where should we go here to uh, wrap up? You know, I think we might be done. Ed Joris, you sent in a question about, is it just me or is the state of GT, LMGT in a near state of crisis? I think Graham yes. and I had that conversation last week <laughs> or in the previous episode and a long one. So we're all good there. Now it's time to move to our final category, fun and hair. Heganeval, also known as fun in general. Uh, what do we have for time? What does the clock tell us? Oh, we're almost there, brother. We're almost kind of at that hour and a well, half or what, so I, I had. Run through? There's two here we can bundle together. One yeah. from T. Cold 76 and one from Chris Coglin. Both asking variation on the same question, which was to do with a rather odd um, uh, just subtext that came out from the World Motorsport Council about the ASN from Canada effectively resigning yes, from the FIA. I heard about what this. What is that going to mean? Yeah, what is that going to mean um, for the future of Canadian motorsport? I th- I'm pretty sure I read something yesterday linked on social media, and I think it was the Toronto Star. So if that is the case, do take a look at that. The, 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 there are two parts to this story. The first is that it might end up with a distinctly, uh, with the nicest possible way, non-professional sporting body becoming the, the, the designated ASN. It's all to do with the threat of bear attack. Uh, it's now got so bad that they had a choice of either uh, wheeling this into the, frankly, despicably poor road safety uh, campaigns being run by the FIA, um, or um, just basically just just negotiating Canada out of it, since they couldn't find any celebrities to stand up and actually stand up against bear attacks, which is the basis of the uh, the FIA. A's uh, road safety campaigns, they've opted to cut Canada completely out of world motorsport. So sorry about that. Um, as I understand it, 
the FIA are now funding not just a wall, by the way, to uh, on the Texan border uh, to your south, but also there's going to be a wall preventing the haulers from going north uh, into Canada. Mossport, uh, Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, uh, is being torn up and will become a bear sanctuary. I mean, or not. The, this all makes complete sense. Uh, and boy, that 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 Toronto newspaper really had a very in-depth piece knowing all about the bear attacks as well. So I'm, I'm the, Well, I think that everybody kind of knows that. I mean, you've got to be wary of that thing on every every single day. I mean, you know, even the small bears, small bears can get through too and They've got a nasty swipe on their paw, mate. You've got to be quite careful with that. Also realizing we have neglected, we neglected in our pre-Christmas part one show so far, we have been just rank scumbags in failing to <laughs> wish a happy birthday to the person born on Jesus's birthday, a fitting, fitting entry to this world. Level five founder, multiple sports oh, car champion. Scott it popped up on my timeline as well. Absolutely. Here's. I'm sure he's having a lovely time. Do they get Christmas dinner in in, uh, in Pokey there? I believe so. Um, I think it, any attempts to take him to the bar might have failed. I, I believe yeah. he might be behind the bars, but I don't believe taking him to the bar panned out as some had hoped. But nonetheless, we want to say Merry Christmas to one of the finer contributors to sports car racing history. Scott Tucker, I, I, boys I and think girls. so. I mean, I was, uh, I was actually watching another episode of Dirty Money the other day, and, uh, you know, there, there are a few more astonishing pieces of television than the Netflix documentary on uh, the fates of Scott Tucker and his business empire. Uh, again, heartily recommended if you've got uh, an hour or so to spare. But uh, happy Christmas, Scott, and happy birthday too. I want to just say thank you to Damian Peachman for sending in the question of will Bentley be keep their Kailami livery for the Bathurst 12 hour? It's no. just, it, no, 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 you can't answer it. It's just, it's the most delightful question ever, Damian. And the fact that that's what you wanted to know in this show, it, it just needs to be celebrated. Um, can, I, can, I, can I answer it really no, quickly? It's no, a 100th anniversary livery. No. No. <laughs> no, no, because that's crazy. Um, just no. Uh, where are we going to go? We're going to go uh, to... Robin Crickman. Really quick, one, really quick one for Robin Crickman since the announcement of Blancpank, including their sponsorship. Who do you believe will step up to be title sponsor? There will not be a title sponsor. Uh, it will be World Challenge Europe. I'm guessing that you're right that that uh, that we're looking by a powered by type sponsor, and I'm guessing that it will be Pirelli if it's going to be anybody. That's the swift answer there. But we will not have it being called anything other than World Challenge up front. That will be the moniker for Europe, for Asia, and indeed for North America. Let's go to James Counter. You're allowed to pick one piece of technology outlawed by the powers that would make its return to, I assume, sports car racing. What would it be? James says, me, hashtag me personally, I'd love to see active suspension. Um, cigarette lighters, James. That's what I think yes. those need to return within the cockpit for sure. Sat-nav. Yes, absolutely. Um, GPS. Active uh, GPS. Yes. Right, what about those radar sat-nav? Uh, radar kind of sat-nav where you can follow really closely behind and adjust the distance. That would work. I think frilly seatbelt covers. I think those need to return for sure. Um, what else can I think of that need? 
fuzzy dice uh, how about, from, how the, about from the, the mirror. I don't know if you had these, did you used to have these in the States where you used to have these shade bands with the name of the, the driver and his partner? No. Sharon, Darren, that kind of thing. Oh. But that, that was a thing in the 70s, 80s in the UK where you used to have the kind of, it would be the name of the driver and his partner or her partner. So I think, you know, I don't know, Alan and Tom, that would have been good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Trailer hitches. I believe those need to return as well. <laughs> that would be, I mean, serious, that would be just fantastic. Um, about, uh, horns. I don't, yeah. don't mean like cow horns. Yes. I mean novelty horns. Turn signals that could just yes. be left on the whole race, right? Yes. Just, that just That's just BMW. Yeah, uh, Yeah. well, fair point, fair point. Um, trying to think what Although, else. Actually, no, BMW, sorry, you would have to actually fit the turn signals to a BMW, wouldn't you? Uh, I'd like to see the proximity opener, uh, say trunk yep. or boot openers, as we see in some vehicles, uh, beneath the back of the car where you don't actually have to touch a button for it to open automatically. You just wave your foot beneath the bottom of the car and it absolutely pops open on its own. I'd love to see so those James pit stops, pit stops. Fantastic. Well, yeah. yeah, but see, this would be actually a bit of fun. This would be a bit of fun sabotage where teams would instruct their driver during, say, all-class pit stops and such, during a yellow possibly, to run out. And on the way to running across the front of their car to get in, they just sweep their foot behind the back of the, their rival car in front of them and pop the, the back of the thing open. You mean sort this, of like a more devious version of Von Smont Capillaire? Absolutely. I, I think that would be fantastic. Um, trying to think what else. What else do we need? Really tall whip antennas, right? Like Ooh. 1970s style uh, trucker. Yeah, CB radios. Yep. That would be awesome, right? I, I mean, yeah, I, truck nuts. See, <laughs> truck nuts for sure. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes. But a complimentary pair of truck nuts, large truck nuts hanging from the rearview mirror that actually yes. govern overdriving because if you turn in too fast or hard to a corner that just you get smacked in the face by your truck nuts and you know not oh, many there are many about, drivers that want what, balls across the nose window stickers i'm with stupid you know things yeah, oh bumper stickers for sure yes, yes. Uh, i do remember i mean this this is one of my favorite creations of all time i used to always wanted to order them from the back of mad magazine so in the 70s when bumper stickers really seemed to take off, at least in my youth, one of the things that blew up popularity-wise was a litany of bumper stickers decrying one's love for whichever model or make of dog that they had. I heart my Yorkie. I heart my Labrador. And so someone, some person whose spirit just fits perfectly with mine, knowing that these bumper stickers are all roughly the same exact size. For whatever reason, there was a bit of a standardized size that was used. Well, they manufactured stickers you could buy that were round and had a drawing of a screw on those stickers. <laughs> and so those were meant to be used in a very subversive way. <laughs> yes, where if you happened to be walking along and saw someone's car parked that had a I love my bulldog well you would cover up the heart with the sticker of the screw 
and just hope that nobody noticed for a really long time um and hope that someone drove around with a bumper sticker that read i screw my bulldog or i screw my yorkie for as long as possible so i'd say that as well james half the field get i love i heart stickers with some with whichever dog they have the other half get the little screw stickers see if they can slap those on before they pull away from pre-grid or pit stops i mean these are the things that i think racing needs james i mean all the bop and this and that and convergence and world formula this whatever this is what we need to be doing Uh, in racing i'm gonna answer a really quick one from nicholas patakis by the way uh, for all the talk of manufacturers interest influence etc curious as to whether or not either of you have been influenced into purchasing a certain mark new or old due to their motorsport involvement i have i for that seven years had my most beloved car uh an audi a6 um le mans uh trim version of the, the of the of the audi loved that car to pieces um was my choice of it influenced by their success in motorsport 100 percent, it absolutely was i liked the way they did it um i got the odd press car from audi loved uh, more or less any one that i actually ever got my hands on was delighted to get my own not only that i can recall no none other than uh, paul troswell once uh, saying to me there are two sorts of uh, sports car journalists uh, the ones who've actually got audis and the ones that want an audi um, and I think he's probably about right at that stage of uh, of the uh, of the play. Whether it's quite like that anymore, I can't tell you. I've no longer got an Audi. I eventually got rid of my, of my uh, beloved A6. But uh, yes, I was influenced directly to do that. Yet further confirmation as to why I've never particularly paid attention to anything Paul says. Um, <laughs> I can say, Nicholas, that if I look out in my garage, which I don't own, I do have... A fine example, all based on motorsports influence and wanting to support a certain mark. The Pruitt family Sunday driver, Panos Abruzzi. I mean, how could Excellent. you not take home one of those fine products where the front looks like the back? Um, it could look like the back end of a donkey. Um, kidding I got aside, spiker some while ago. Yes, kidding aside. I did purchase a Mazda CX-7, the one that was totaled, which is replaced by the CX-9 I mentioned. I did buy that, not because Mazda raced the CX-7, because it was a medium-sized SUV, but because of their heavy involvement in motorsports, more specifically on the grassroots level. Not the big, showy pro stuff, but just their real serious commitment and connection to club racing. And I figured, you know, we need a vehicle. We need something like this. There are many to choose from. There were a number that might have been, quote, nicer or sportier from more luxurious brands. But we just wanted to buy the Mazda because their spirit seemed to fit ours, which was, all right, well, you guys seem really interested and involved in supporting all aspects of the sport. So... Not that it's going to make any real difference in their annual earnings statement, but let's spend our money here because they show year after year that they care about folks at all levels of the sport, not just trying to get folks to buy the biggest, shiniest thing that costs the most. So definitely uh, a choice made there, Nicholas. Uh, Where else should we go? Are we just about done? 
Is there one one other Jacob Bame? Here we go. Jacob, you are the freaking star submitter of the show. We're going to close on yours. Graham, what is the most unusual sports car related gift you would like to see on your Christmas tree this year, knowing that we are saving this for post Christmas? Was there something that showed up under your tree that was, I guess, unusual that you wanted? He also asks, maybe you have some Christmas related stories from the paddock. You'd like to share with us. I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you a Christmas-related story rather than a Christmas-related gift. Christmas-related story is this: Delhi Sports Car has been around for just under two decades now, and we have had competitive websites that have come and competitive websites that have gone. Uh, there was one in particular um, some years back now. Um, is this which, another Murphy the Bear reference? No, it's not Murphy the Bear reference. Now, this it was a rather strange guy uh, based at Sebring. Um, pretty well connected, got uh, lots of um, stories to the paddock, etc., etc. Um, somewhat erratic. Um, I think we got into kind of some minor social media spat about something he'd written, which was inaccurate. I was polite enough to point this out to him privately. Are you sure he... this was Murphy the Bear? <laughs> <laughs> um, he then offered to fight me, which yes. was, I thought, an interesting approach. Um, either way, uh, we th- the Christmas-related part of this was one of the ways in which this gentleman plied his trade was to throw... Uh, all sorts of press release material through Google Translate, um, producing some remarkable results. Now, you may very well remember uh, back in the day a gentleman driver called Noel Del Bello. Yes. That name ring Absolutely. Uh, who, of course, translates when you put it through Christmas, uh, through uh, Google Translate as Christmas Del Bello. And indeed, on more than one occasion, there were headlines on this website long gone, um, and I can't even remember what the damn thing was called, but uh, Christmas Del Bello. So that's my Merry Christmas to you. Uh, things I'd like to see under my Christmas tree, a common sense answer to the question on everybody's lips, which is convergence. What's going to happen? When's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? And can we please have this explained properly rather than trickling out because someone's blabbed? That would be a nice Christmas present, uh, New Year's present, I think, to all of us. Pervergence. Is that a thing? I know we're aiming <laughs> for convergence. Pervergence seems like something, uh, yeah, we might might it's, deal with as well. It's, it's a, it, that's, a, that's a kind of version of the thing that I'd most like to see, by the way, in every meeting. You know, you get these kind of these signs that are actually put on chairs that say reserved. Yes. You know those ones? Yes. I've always thought every time I see them, I've always wanted to see the signs on the other chairs that say extrovert. It's just a strange thing. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, I will, I mean, I posted the thing on Twitter just so the world could say thank you to the amazing folks that did this. Uh, yeah, Jacob. So it wasn't unusual. Uh, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. But I've been waiting to give this to my wife uh, until Christmas, and that was the amazingly kind folks at Ford Performance Multimatic in Ford Chip Ganassi Racing sent a decent-sized box our way 
about two weeks after Le Mans might've been three. And I didn't have a clue as to what it was. And so opened it up and found that it was this amazing, amazing thing, uh, which was a gift from my wife from them. And it was the rear cowling one that housed the, I believe rear brake lights possibly, or might have been the exhaust I, again. I'm, I apologize for forgetting yep. the uh, the exhausts that sat right beneath the rear wing of the number sixty nine Ford GT, the one running in the close to not exactly Gulf colors, the Ken Miles tribute cars they called it, wearing my wife's uh, tribute sticker created by our friend <clears throat> Andy Blackmore. And this was just an amazing, an amazing gesture by them wanting to send the race used uh, panel that had my uh, wife's sticker on it carried into battle at Le Mans. Obviously, the uh, post-race scrutineering was not necessarily the most uh, enjoyable part of the event for Ford's farewell to GT racing, for now at least, and with this car as well. But nonetheless... The fact that uh, those good folks at Ford, at Multimatic, and at Ganassi thought of her and wanted to send her a keepsake uh, from you know, something that competed at Le Mans uh, with this sticker, encouraging her and supporting her through her ongoing uh, cancer fight. Uh, I just, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, as a guy who has words for a living... I don't really have any words. I mean, what do you say, right? I mean, this is something, Graham, where, I mean, this is just not even, this isn't even, this doesn't even reconcile in my head. They didn't ask, they didn't ask, and I wouldn't, you know, but there's just an acknowledgement that, like, nobody on the planet has this. You realize that. Like, this is not something you can buy on eBay, there's no, and I don't even know what it's worth. I don't want to know. I just know that this is the kind of thing that uh, it just speaks to immense character by a number of people who decided to do something and let something owned by the Ford factory out of their hands to just be nice and loving and caring. And it's it's just a gesture again that you know blew her away blew me away and i was really happy jacob to be able to finally on christmas show that to her and uh it's 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 still you know how when someone wins a championship or wins a major major title or something like that and they get asked what does it feel like what does it feel and they say i don't even know it's going to take me a couple of days to try and you know, I, 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 I can't even, I can't grasp it. Here we are. I still can't grasp this six months later uh, of this. Uh, I feel like that guy who's like been bestowed with this thing where you go. And it's again, it's for my wife, but we've been bestowed with this thing that yeah, I just can't even put words to it. Let me, let me fill in a couple of gaps here. And this is a good way to finish this year, I think. First thing is I'm going to say is thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our listeners in your growing numbers and in particular for your not just regular but constant thanks 
to us and particularly to Marshall and to Chabral for continued efforts for putting the Marshall Pruitt podcast together through what I'm sure MP has been a an astonishingly difficult year. It is massively appreciated. We know because they keep telling us by the listeners. Um, here's to a much better 2020, a much better 2020 in the Pruitt household that you've managed this year. Your resilience and Chabral's resilience, I know, has been an inspiration to many of us. I'm delighted you got that package because it's a flavour of what we were seeing in the paddocks while you weren't able to be there. That the the love and respect that was going your way because so many families have been through these kind of experiences and to have one of their own uh, going through that, I know, meant it was very personal to a lot of people. So I'm delighted that you had just a flavour of that. And I think that's a great way to finish this year. This is a great big sporting family, whether or not it's the racers, the teams, the journalists and PR guys, and you guys on the other side of the fence the watchers doing what we do and read what we we do and listen to what we actually do and keep coming back and asking us for more. Keep doing that. Keep keeping us honest. Keep the questions coming because we're not going anywhere. We're going to be right here in 2020 with much, much more of this. Lots of news to come on where this is heading into next year. But for me, MP, uh, all the love in the world to you and yours. Um, we know better things are coming in 2020 in a whole range of ways, but more than anything else, I'm hoping that it comes in a way that means the most to you. Thank you, my brother, and thank you all again to everyone here who tunes in each week and gives us the latitude to just act a fool. Graham tends to be the intelligent one. I'm the flavor flave, the clown prince of, the, of my life and shows and whatever. And appreciate that you come here and join in both with the serious questions and some that are silly. And this continues to grow. And also great thanks once more as we close to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers to helping help bring this to uh, to you as well. All right. Well, we're done for the decade, year, millennium, uh, centenary, uh bajillion i don't know um we're done we're done we got to say goodbye thank you thank you and did we mention Bushu's hammer emporium even once are we risking losing that sponsorship and did you mention let's wait did you say the magic phrase let's wait and see even once i don't think so once once once, but I, i i fear i fear we might just have lost that deal with Christoph and his hammer shop. Well, pervergence strikes again. <laughs> All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin. This is the Week in Sports Cars. We will speak to you next week. <laughs>